0: To Inside COP26, with me, Sophie Schnapp, on Built Radio. Inside COP26 is a daily broadcast from the heart of the pivotal climate summit, COP26. Each day, we'll be providing you with digestible snippets of the goings-on around COP, from unpicking the politics from inside the blue zone, where the climate negotiations take place, to the underground and inspirational fringe events around the city of Glasgow. Alongside my co-hosts, Tori Choi, Love Sega, Sally Milhook, and Hayden Thorpe, we will be talking to scientists, activists, artists, musicians and more to be your eyes and ears inside and on the fringe of COP26. Our intro music is a track called Losing My Head by Hot Chip. Losing My Head was donated to Earth% a charity who is partnering with our show inside COP26. To kick off the show, every day we'll be talking to Salim Wilhook unpicking the politics from inside the Blue Zone, where the climate negotiations take place. Salim Mulhook is a friend of the show and is one of the top scientists from Bangladesh on climate change science. He was recognized as one of the top 20 global influencers on climate change policy in 2019, and we are delighted to have him on the show. Welcome, Salim. So Hi, Sophie. How are you today? I'm <laughs> okay. I'm okay, also
1: exhausted. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, also exhausted, but I'm uh, hanging in there till the end. Yeah. And then I'll take a break. The bittersweet end. <laughs> Indeed. So I feel like this week has passed by so fast, just like last week. It always happens that way. It starts slow and then it goes very, very fast at the end and you don't even realise Why? when it happens. It's the nature of the beast. You know, the, it, the negotiations in the details take a long time and you don't, it's very difficult to figure out what's happening. But then when it comes towards the end and we have the political declarations of what's coming out, that's when the rubber hits the road and countries um, push for what they want. And the presidency has to accommodate that. So the presidency brought out a draft yesterday. Mm-hmm. They got a huge amount of pushback on that. We pushed back on it. The Climate Vulnerable Forum had a, uh, a press conference yesterday saying it wasn't ambitious enough. Uh, the presidency are working on that now. Uh, hopefully, they will take these ideas into account and give us a revised output by tomorrow.
0: So what were the initial
1: proposed? Well, um, the, the, basically, it was extremely unambitious. It didn't take us to 1.5. Really? It didn't get us to the 100 billion. Wow. Um, and it didn't do anything on loss and damage. It did It paid lip service to all three, but it didn't deliver on any of them. So
0: what have you asked
1: for? We've asked for delivery. We've a, a, We've asked for a, a realistic plan to reach 1.5 degrees, which requires an annual review, not just every five years. That just is not compatible with treating it as an emergency. We've asked for the 100 billion to be delivered over five years, so 500 billion over five years, because they've already missed two years and not delivered. So they owe that. So over the next five years, they should deliver... 500 billion and we want to see their plan for delivery and on loss and damage we are asking for glasgow to be the place where finance for loss and damage gets uh, approved not money on the table but that there shall be money on the table and then we can work on that and and improve it and deliver it in cop 27 which will be in in africa in egypt
0: tell me where tell me tell me things about this because as this one comes to a close, it's this, we do have to think about the future and the legacy of what's happened here, what's been going on here and how we push it forward to get even better results well, because the current results are
1: not going to be... Sure. So, so um, next year, it's Africa's turn to host COP because every year it's a different continent. And Egypt has stepped forward to be the host. And it's going to be an African COP, very clearly an African COP. In fact, they have said it's not just an African COP, it's a vulnerable countries COP, including vulnerable countries from other continents. So that means it's our COP. And we will set the agenda and we will decide what needs to be addressed and how ambitious it needs to be. And we will push other countries to make that happen. This COP, COP26, is Boris Johnson's COP. Mm. is the UK's COP. Mm. They pushed back on many things that we asked for. We are not happy with that. Uh, next year we will be in charge, and they will have to do what we ask them to do.
0: Okay, but how will we actually get them to do it? Because they're not doing it here, they didn't do it before, the fossil fuels are still, you know, 80% of which are take over our energy systems, and it's been the same for 10 years.
1: Absolutely. So the, the COPs have limited power to change real politics and real finance. But they do have some power. They can move things forward. And the COP 21 in Paris was a good example of that. We agreed in Paris, keep temperature below 1.5. The rich countries would provide 100 billion a year to the poor countries. And we now have loss and damage as one of the issues that we need to take into account. Um, Glasgow was about putting us back on track. We weren't on track coming into Glasgow. We hope as we come out of glasgow we will be back on track and then we can pick it up again in cop27 in uh, in egypt and take things forward in a more ambitious manner we have not been too ambitious here we haven't been able to be too ambitious here in in glasgow
0: so when will we <clears throat> when will we know about the final final results of cop tomorrow tomorrow what, uh, that's friday you mean yes friday.
1: tomorrow friday um, historically, we never finish on a Friday. Right. We've always gone to Saturday or sometimes even Sunday, uh, which has been extremely um, debilitating, particularly for poorer country delegates who only have permission and enough money to stay until Friday. Yeah. They all have tickets going home on Saturday. And if the negotiations continue into Saturday and, and Sunday, they can't stay on. They don't have permission to stay on. They don't have enough money to stay on. So, more than 90% of them have to leave. That's what happened last COP in Madrid. They all left. And when they've gone, they're they're no longer fighting for their cause. For two weeks, they fight Mm. their red lines. And when they leave, their red lines disappear. And when they get home, they read the newspaper and they see everything they fought for for two weeks is gone. Mm. Shit. It's a negotiating tactic by some of the big bully countries to to prevent an, an, an... an agreement in time Mm. Uh, well COP26 presidency knows that I hope that they will insist on finishing on time.
0: So you don't think that there's going to be uh, something coming
1: out of COP called the Glasgow agreement? There will be a Glasgow decision it's being called a Glasgow cover decision. Glasgow? Cover cover Cover. decision, sort of an umbrella Mm. uh, covering everything that was discussed in, in Glasgow but it isn't an agreement in the sense that it isn't it isn't like the Paris Agreement. It's not something new. It just picks up what was, what is in the different negotiating tracks that happened here in Glasgow and pulls them into one package uh, so people can understand basically what happened in Glasgow.
0: So we're not going to be leaving saying the Glasgow coverage
1: package, la, 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 do you think? or We shall see. I mean, they, it, we should not be um, expecting anything too ambitious, all right? What we got yesterday as a draft was very low ambition, unacceptably low. Uh, we are hoping that that will be changed by tomorrow to reasonably high ambition. Not very high, but reasonably high, so that we can leave here saying we got something done. Um, not everything we needed, something. We shall see.
0: And what are the things that have come out? is there anything that's come out that's made you feel positive or that are... Um good political decisions before we
1: go. Well, we, we are already hearing very positive aspects on adaptation funding, which was a big ask from yeah. the vulnerable countries. All the rich countries are saying, yes, we'll give you more. How much they want to give us isn't commensurate how much we want, but that's where the negotiation takes place. But the positive sign is that they will. The UK announced a sizable contribution on adaptation just a couple of days ago. Uh, so those are all good signs, signs of goodwill. Um, they are accepting that loss and damage is a big issue that needs to be addressed here. This was something they didn't do before in Madrid. They refused to do it. So COP 25 we couldn't get it through. COP 26 we hope we'll get it through. They've been making positive um, signals. Uh, we'll have to see what what comes out in the actual de- um, declaration. Uh, but I, I'm uh, quite positive that it should come. Something should come out. Okay,
0: great. And what about what's been going on at the Resilience Hub and what's been going on in the Scottish Power Headquarters?
1: So we've been doing the Resilience Hub as a very, very interesting experiment of bringing all the non-state actors who are working on resilience uh, in three combined ways. Firstly, those of the people who have been able to get to Glasgow have been doing sessions from morning till evening uh, at the Resilience Hub those who aren't able to come to Glasgow have been linking up virtually, so almost every session has had in-person speakers and virtual speakers involved, so people were able to participate without actually flying to Glasgow. And this time we did a very interesting experiment. To my knowledge nobody's ever done this before. We had what we call satellite events taking Mm -hmm. place around the world Mm -hmm. virtually. People that work on resilience who met themselves and then sent us a message for Glasgow, five-minute message based on whoever they are. We had waste pickers, we had women's groups, we had children's groups, we had many different groups who are working on resilience, had their own meeting, uh, and then they sent us a message for Glasgow, uh, a five-minute message, which, which we've been showing at the Resilience Hub repeatedly. Downstairs there's a video that shows these uh, messages continuously coming in. And the, pr- the principle was that this started actually when when a lot of poor countries were on the UK's red list, which meant 10 days of a hotel quarantine, oh, extremely yeah. expensive. And many, many people who would have come said they can't afford to come. Mm. They can't come. So we designed this for people not coming to Glasgow, being able to participate. Mm. And it worked very well.
0: Amazing. Well done. Is there any final reflections, emotions, feelings about the whole atmosphere in COP, not just the blue zone, not just the green zone, not just, you know, everywhere, the, the fringe events, the, the resilience areas, the, you know, all of this. And how are you feeling?
1: Absolutely. So people ask me how my COP is, and I say, my COP is always great, <sighs> because at a personal level, I spend my time meeting old friends, making new friends yeah. like you, uh, and I have a great time. That's what I come here for, networking, meeting people, having a good time, good conversations. So my personal copy is always good. What happens in the in the greater negotiations? Not always good. We'll see what happens there. Uh, but also the experience in Scotland has been not just within the blue zone or the green zone, but outside in the city of uh, Glasgow with the Scottish people. I actually lived in Edinburgh, so I used to commute, and I met people in Edinburgh as well as as Glasgow, and it's been great. They've been extremely hospitable, extremely friendly. And I would point out one very major outcome that happened here, which I feel is the highlight of COP26, but not many people will even know that, is the uh, initiative by the government of Scotland under First Minister Nicola uh, Nicola, uh, Sturgeon to allocate a million pounds for a loss and damage fund. She's the first leader in the world to put some money on the table for loss and damage. And I saw just today... She's doubled it. Really? So she started before COP with one million and today she's doubled it to two million. Oh, we love it. And she's challenged other leaders to join. And has
0: anyone else joined? Not yet.
1: They, but they're, they're considering their positions now because they have, they really need, do need to respond to that challenge, which is why a COP decision in Glasgow that says we will look at finance, which they've never agreed to now Mm -hmm. before, will allow us between now and COP 27 to gather potential um, countries who might be willing to join Scotland and put more money on the table. And then we have money for loss and damage as well, something we fought for for a long time without success. Hopefully in Glasgow we can open the door for that. Can't
0: wait and I hope that the legacy just means more and more money will come in for loss we and damage so. because it is so. outrageous. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for everything. You're and, welcome uh, and
1: good luck with your uh, programmes.
0: Thank you. Hello.
2: Hello. Hello tell me your name, please? Sure, I'm Tom Howes. I'm head of the Energy and Environment Division at the International Energy Agency.
0: Amazing.
2: Um, And what have you been doing around COP? Oh, we've been uh, here in quite some force. Uh, Fatih Birol was here all of last week, which was exceptional. Uh, There's just so many people here gathered, and uh, it's a good opportunity to get our messages out, our messages of the fact that net zero is feasible, that there are policies and measures available to us now, Uh, There's also a need to to build build up our innovation and technology development for the the medium term, but already in the short term there are policies and measures available to us, uh, good practices. There's the need to um, bring in people to all of this. We created uh, earlier this year a people-centred energy transitions commission, uh, which has got energy ministers from around the world just making sure that uh, the distributional aspects, the energy access aspects of policy are not neglected because it's a huge transition. The energy transition isn't just the energy sector. It's affecting all parts of our lives, transport, housing, businesses, jobs. Um, so you've really got to make sure that people understand this and are part of it and accept it, because without that, nothing's going to happen.
0: And just for the listeners out there, what does
2: net zero mean? Net zero means, uh, well, we've done an a, a economic analysis uh, of a scenario where all the energy sector's emissions are reduced to very near zero. Um, but there are some sectors which it, where it's very expensive or difficult to actually reduce to, to completely to zero. So for those, we, we try to compensate. So even if there's some emissions still, for instance, in, in uh, heavy steel production or in concrete or in fertiliser fertilizer production, you can compensate that by sinking carbon somewhere else, either through carbon capture and storage, so literally capturing carbon, carbon from emissions or from the air and st- sinking it into a, an old oil well or something like that um, or planting trees and, and or using seaweed forests to, to sink carbon into into the sea or into the earth.
0: Great. And can you tell me just the what the purpose of the Ia is and the importance of the Ia globally in this kind of climate of
2: crisis? Well, we were created in 1974 to deal with a different crisis, to deal with, to deal with the oil oil sector crisis, oil price rises. Uh, so our, our historical focus was on making sure we had secure energy supplies and affordable energy supplies. But that mandate's changed over the years because security of energy also means sustainability of energy. Uh, we're seeing on almost a daily basis the impact of climate change that disrupts our energy supplies, whether that's blowing down uh, infrastructure or, or freezing gas pipes uh, or, or causing massive uh, droughts and, or, or flooding, which, again, disrupts energy infrastructure. So out of necessity, energy policy is moving into addressing these climate issues. And the agency produces, well, it gathers a lot of data from our members around the world. We've, we've got about over 30 uh, member governments who, uh, who've, who fund us. Um, so we collect data we undertake analysis we produce policies and scenarios and proposals basically to help governments understand what's going on understand what other countries are doing by way of best practice in policy so that everyone can learn from each other and implement good policies which are addressing our energy policy goals
0: amazing and the so the 30 members are the people or the, the the governments that take your stats and your figures and your findings into account within their own mandates what about the other 170, or I don't know how many, but there's a load more countries in the world that um, aren't members, but how do you affect
2: them? Sure, well, partly we we reach out to some in in particular. I mean, we've we've got, uh, for instance, five big uh, uh, associate members, uh, countries like Brazil, Indonesia, uh, South Africa. Um, So we, we reach out to them to, again, to share best practice and also to help them build up their own domestic capacity both to either gather the data they need to understand what's going on, um, but also to, to help them, their, their, their civil servants and their communities understand what they also can be doing um, in, their, in their way to, uh, to, if you like, leapfrog what the, what the developed world has done to, to get cracking, um, because the growth in energy is going to be in the developed, developing world from now on. Um, so they've also got to understand this and, and take measures themselves directly. So we reach out to those associate countries and through them to, to the regions that they're in. So we have projects dealing with Latin American hydropower and climate crisis as a whole or dealing with Asian countries and their use of energy resources. So we reach out globally. And what
0: does the IEA have to do with the Paris Climate Agreement and how are you helping countries around the world reach this 1.5 emission
2: uh, degree mandate? Well. It's our, we're chiefly an, an analytical organization, so we've come forward with the scenario on net zero, we, came, we produced this earlier this year, and it's, it's important for governments to understand that, uh, that net zero is feasible, that there are technologies available to us, there are policies available to us where, where they can actually make it happen, and in, you help break it down to make it manageable. So we do that. Um, We've got colleagues who literally support the negotiations on parts of the Paris Agreement, such as Article 6. Uh, I have a team working on carbon pricing around the world. And we both help design uh, the structures of carbon pricing or, or emissions trading schemes around the world. But we also help with the the technical discussions of Article Six, which is one article of the Paris Agreement about carbon trading around the world.
0: Right, right. And what so what? What I hear and what I know and what I feel is that currently the price on carbon is certainly not uh, not what it should be to get us to this 1.5 mandate, and it's not doesn't create kind of climate justice or any equality. It really it prospered. It helped energy companies prosper. What's your what's
2: the I A stance there, and it, do you not think that it should be um, a, a different price? Um, you're right. Overall, it's it's not the prices are not high enough. Um, we use carbon pricing. It's we, we're creating a market. It's 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 adding it's correcting market prices around the world. We do most of our things through market pricing, so it's it's good to adapt markets to to work this way. But it's true you've got prices like uh, 120 euro in Scandinavia. Um, But in the bulk of the world, prices are are less than than €5 per per tonne of CO2. Um, As to the the distributional consequences of it, that can be part of every scheme. In a sense, carbon pricing is flexible. You can introduce it at whatever level you you think you need, um, with whatever sectors you think you need, over a timescale you think you need. So it's a flexible tool. Um, It can start off low and get increased. Another aspect that's important is how you're going to use the revenues In a lot of countries, the revenues are used to actually compensate the people paying it. So you get a lump sum um, in in return, and that helps deal with the the, the distributional consequences of it. Or you could use revenues to help finance innovation to develop more low-carbon technologies. So it's it's a flexible tool. It provides a market incentive, and it gives you revenues to help deal with the situation. Okay,
0: and just a final one then. How do you think copper's gone? I want to know your perspective from... Um I guess how you think government ministers will be feeling about the negotiations at the end of the, by the end of the week, and how you think activists feel about it
2: mm. <laughs> um, well, I think ministers are, are struggling to come up with sufficiently clear uh, and consensual uh, announcements and am- ambitions, and um, there 'll be something at the end of it all um for m- for my part, I think any kind of statements, um, whether it's the 30% methane pledge or, or, or parallel pledges such as the US-China uh, methane pledge, all announcements are good. Every little step is helping. Every little step that is about what government's are actually going to do now is even better. Um, so I think that's all good. I think overall yes, probably the, the, the climate community might be disappointed um, because they know uh, and they're very conscious of the fact that we really need to speed up on all of this, so they won't be happy with the, the speed or the level of ambition. Um, but uh, I guess ministers feel that any step in the right direction is a good step, uh, and I guess I'm more in that camp. Right,
0: right, right. Well, thank you so much for coming on board. Mm-hmm. Hello, lovely to meet you. Hey, nice to meet you too. Can you tell me your name and where you come from?
3: My name is Rana Adib. I'm um, from Rent21, the Renewable Energy Pulse Network for the 21st century. And we are based in Paris. Amazing. And tell me
0: why Rent21 is so important.
3: Why Rent21 is so important? Because we are at a stage where renewable energy and uh, the revolution around renewable energy is a societal choice and needs to become a societal choice. And Rentonon is a community of players from governments, intergovernmental organizations, industry, research and academia, and NGO, uh, working together to basically making the shift to renewables happen. And um, the perspectives and the diversity of perspectives uh, within this community is really important because it's about uh, driving societal change.
0: And this systemic change, societal change is what we're all calling for, what we all need and it's not coming and it's not coming fast enough so i i thank you for your your efforts um there's a lot of conversation at cop at the moment on how we are really going to get to net zero and how Mm -hmm. we're really going to like stop these emissions happening yes and one of the big avenues is renewable energy right Mm -hmm. but there are also other avenues and what do you say to them for example nuclear Mm -hmm. or um yeah
3: So the first thing I think to underline is that uh, we're today in a situation where renewable energy, in particular renewable electricity, so solar, photovoltaics and wind, is the least cost option when we're looking at the cost. Uh, So there is an economic reason already and um, this is uh, in the world in which we're living quite important and that's for instance also reason why we see that corporations are moving very much into um, the consumption of renewable power. Now, the reality is, however, that when we are looking at the overall energy system, the share of fossil fuel has not moved during the last 10 years and even more than 10 years. Um, And this is linked to the fact that um, especially heating and cooling and transportation, where we consume more than 80% of the energy or that represent more than 80% of the energy consumption, are centered around fossil fuel. Mm. And fossil fuel is today subsidized in 115 countries. Um, As a result, even though renewable energy is the least cost option, very often when we look at cost, it's not operating in a level playing field. Now, what is necessary with regard to this, and when we are speaking, so I think one thing is clear, we need to leave, and that's clear, it's not enough. Governments, for them, it's not enough to support energy-saving efficiency and renewables. They clearly need to phase out fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's today something which is acknowledged also by organizations that were more conservative, like the International Energy Agency. We have a new norm with regard to this. Now, there is a lot of noise, and I think you spoke about nuclear, for instance. Um, We also see very much about the whole hydrogen discussion. Our response with regard to this is, when we speak about nuclear, nuclear is A, not the least cost option is not a global solution because it is not a solution everywhere whereas renewable energy is a solution everywhere um, and when we're speaking about hydrogen very clearly we we see that we need to speak about renewable based hydrogen and not great hydrogen or blue hydrogen and this means that we need to increase massively the deployment of renewable electricity. Um, so we
0: need to upscale renewable energy and renew- renewable electricity to an in- extremely huge level right yes exactly. and that's very daunting and a huge task ahead um the one of the problems that comes with that is the concept of land use that yes. it takes up like mm-hmm. you know wind farms are, are huge mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. and um there's now talk on sea and how what how that impacts you know the ecosystems underwater even on land and mm-hmm. um so how do we upscale to the degree that we want in the time frame that we need whilst protecting the lands mm-hmm. that we need to be protecting.
3: Mm-hmm. So there, there are different entry points with regard to this. Is one is when we're looking at uh, the deployment today, um, I think the, the investment, for instance, on renewable power and fuels have increased from 2019 to 2020 by 2%. And on average, they, should, they would need to increase by 200%. Wow. So this is the gap we are talking wow. about. So and, and I also think like in the land use discussion, and please don't misunderstand me, obviously the land use, the whole sustainability, the social and environmental sustainability is fundamental when we are speaking about the transitions. This needs to be at heart of it because any technology has a social and environmental impact and we need to acknowledge it and accept it. But it's also a reality that we need to also think about, um, not always think about the extremes of uh, 100% renewable energy-based infrastructures when we are speaking about a share of more or less 10% in the total fine energy consumption. And there is a long way to go where we do not have directly negative impacts, whether it is environmental or social. When we're speaking about land use, there are many areas where uh, we do not have a competition in terms of land use. There's a the possibility of uh, using rooftops, um, etc., on solar PV. Um, there are other alternatives also. We speak very much about wind and PV, but there is also uh, geothermal, existing hydropower. There's a possibility of using... Uh, Using, for instance, uh, hydropower plants and combining this with floating solar, so there are um, there are also other technical solutions that do exist. Now, um, how do we and maybe just to underline, I really like this example because I think it's very telling. Globally, there is a lot of support for renewable energy. Locally, there is pushback. Mm. In Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, this, the distance from a house to a wind uh, generator has been increased and is a minimum of one kilometer. And as a result, we have lost 30% of the spaces that uh, where wind power could have been developed. So this is a push and it's also a political push. In the same country, you can build a highway at 200 meters of a house. Wow. In the same country, we're relocalizing villages um, to have coal mining. Mm. And so I think it's, uh, it's really important. Um, obviously sustainability is fundamental and needs to be addressed by the sector. But it's also important to acknowledge that the rules which are applied to the different technical solutions are different mm. because there is a very strong lobbying behind it.
0: Mm. Thank you so much. Um, If there's one thing you could say to listeners who are just beginning to engage in
3: the climate fight, uh, if they could take one action, what would it be? The first thing is raise your voice. Mm -hmm. Um, The other one is uh, when you're serious about the shift is find out where you yourself as energy consumer can buy your power. So buy it from your renewable energy, potentially uh, buy it from a corporate or community-driven renewable energy, because it's also bad governance structures we want to change.
1: Thank you so much. fast, fear. Mama, can't see Hi there.
0: Can you tell me your name and what you've been up to over
4: COP? My name is Nick Eliades, and I have been up to a lot of things. I've, um, I've been reporting for COP26.tv live every day at 12.00. And um, um, six, and I'm my own producer, I presenter, and my own camera guy. So really, it's one man show. And so it's quite tiring. No, last week I must say I had some help. Um, but you know, I've also been a journalist for The Ecologist. Uh brought out an article, out an article this week, and I have also been doing PR work for Global Voices, getting them onto the media. You know, raising that that international voice of people who are on the front lines of climates to the world stage. Tell me, tell
0: me, tell me, A, how it's been for you, what your experience has been, and B, how you're feeling about the decisions that have been made here.
4: Well, look, the experience has been rather fantastic. Um, firstly, especially the first week, it was this, as I described in an article I wrote, a carnival of climate, mm-hmm. you know, um, and meeting people from every corner of the planet who are here, worried and concerned about climate has been really quite, quite uplifting. And so that, that, that permeated the air and you really felt how people were, you know, excited about the prospects. However, this week, I must say today, I'm feeling very, very tired. Um, and there's a certain damper in the atmosphere here that just feels down. It feels, and it's not just me. I think it's all of us. We're just fried, fried and also kind of disappointed that that hopefulness is not working out because. There was a moment where we thought, maybe, maybe, just maybe, which is kind of foolish of us, that the leaders would actually get on with it and not kick the can down the proverbial road. But it seems that that's what what is happening again. The issue is that there is no road, it's an abyss. And we're kicking down that can down an abyss that has been eaten away by the sea, really, quite literally. And so I think that, that you certainly feel that atmosphere, that electricity has been dampened, sadly.
0: Yeah, and so the fact that there haven't been any really progressive or future-looking um, agreements that have come out, do, do you feel like we're really not on track to meet this 1.5 mandate now?
4: 1.5? And if we could get to 2, that would be a miracle.
0: <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> we're at 2.4 right now, as estimated and estimated with all of the nationally determined contributions.
4: Well, look, that's an improvement from the beginning of the of the is 2.7. Right?
0: Exactly, totally. But still,
4: it's not good enough. No. It's just not good enough.
0: No. So many people are going to be in serious danger, and some, so many people are actually going to die with that, you know? It's, it's petrifying. Um, is there any way we can leave this on a light note, or do we just think this is, you know, there's been a lot of excitement, and at the end of the 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 crescendo, everything comes tumbling down, and we leave feeling disappointed? Well...
4: We can, if you like, Mm -hmm. but we can also think about what John Kerry said before COP began was that this is going to be a place to galvanize. Yeah. I I was uncomfortable with that statement initially, but having experienced it, I, I would agree that that is actually what it has done, not produced results. But that galvanization, shall we say, is a very good thing because the ripples that come out of here... People have told me how their grandparents know that they're in COP and now they're caring about climate. And there has been a shift in, in 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 the world's attention to climate change. And there's almost like this sense that, yes, this is real. There is that electricity outside, which is fueled by rage, fury and disappointment. But it's there. Yeah. Four years ago, there wasn't that. At Paris, you didn't have that. Yeah. People didn't know what the hell a cop was. Sure. And now, everyone knows what a cop is. Yeah,
0: I do wonder whether, so just for the listeners out there, the fringe events have been actually inspirational, cultural, and really bringing us a sense of hope, but also deep desire to come as one with the lands, understanding ourselves better, and and listening to indigenous peoples and communities, and learning from different ways of being, and, culture is really coming together at the forefront currently on the fringes, right? Mm-hmm. Which has been... I've never experienced that at like a COP before. It's never been so edgy and fun. So, like, is that because we're in Glasgow or is that because so many more people are in the fight now that it's like the cultural sector has engaged as well?
4: Look, I, I, I was at the COP in Madrid two years ago, the last one. Um, there was certainly a cultural fringe around these things and the Minga and the and all these things certainly occurred, but not to the level and sophistication that I'm seeing here in Glasgow. Yeah. But of course, that's partly because the COP in Madrid was a last minute affair. Um, I think partly it does have to do with the culture of this country we're in. Scotland yeah. is just a very welcoming, fantastic host nation. But I think it has certainly very much to do with the fact that people now begin to care and accept that climate change is a reality and that we need to do something or else. We're all
0: going to die. We are all going to die. Thank you so much for coming. It's my absolute pleasure. the heavy rain. Nice to see you too. Nice to see you again. Mm-hmm. Nice to see you again indeed. Tell me before we begin your name and what you do
5: so that our listeners can okay. understand. Okay. I am Philip Bradshaw. I'm the Lord Provost of Glasgow, which is basically the civic mayor of the city of Glasgow. Um, yes. You had a lot of hopeful,
0: positive thoughts, and I'm just really curious to know how COP's been for you
5: very positive but there's always more that needs to be done and I think obviously Glasgow will be a stepping stone but not the end result. Uh, there's still a lot more work that needs to be uh, taking place over the next coming years but I think if we, even in Glasgow if you can leave a blueprint of where we should go to, that's great. One thing that's been very positive is that the business community have started to come uh, on board. I think the business community are now really um, wanting to be engaged in this. And I think there's more work to be done for our young people, there's more work to be done for the the, uh, the, the First Nation, the Indigenous Nations uh, and the Global South, but also, dare I say it, for uh, gender equality in this whole debate. There have been positives, there have been negatives, and there have been some grey areas with regards to COP in Glasgow. But ultimately, for me, uh, from a very parochial local level, I think Glasgow has, as a host city, done the best that he uh, could I think he's been a, a great host it has been a, a very welcoming and, and warm host certainly the people of Glasgow have, have shown uh, a light on, on the city whether the world leaders at the end of the day will actually um, come through with the, the very bold and ambitious decisions and necessary decisions that's a whole other debate but uh, i think that whatever the the outcome will be of cop here in glasgow it will certainly not be the the last chapter in this long and, and very important right well,
6: hello my name is james i'm a filmmaker and adventurer for people who have not engaged in the climate fight what the one action they can take is to shift their mentality shift the mindset switch from a a, a mindset of despair and hopelessness and powerlessness to agency. Get engaged, get curious, get involved, consider it as a puzzle. Pick your piece of the puzzle and get involved.
7: Hello, it's Helena Bennett here. Um, Just a couple of reflections on the last couple of days of COP. Um, We've seen a copy of the draft text Depending on who you are and what your opinions are, you could say it's negative uh, or positive. We've seen mention of fossil fuels for the first time in a text like this, which is positive because it's breaking new barriers, uh, but it also isn't stringent, significant or robust enough um, to actually encourage and ensure the phase out of fossil fuels. We're yet to see the climate finance being pledged, actually delivered and agreed. Um, we're yet to see an agreement of the uh, NDC ratchet mechanism, frequency increase agreed. Really hoping we can see some of the stuff over the next couple of days. The uh, typical blockers being reported are the usual suspects uh, oil rich nations, anyone's with vested interest in the fossil fuel industry. We also have seen the UK rejecting a request to join the BOGA, the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, which would see the uh, phase out and uh, pull out of fossil fuel projects. Um, I think about 12 nations have signed that now, signed up to it, um, which is a positive start that nations and states have actually actively declared that they want to stop funding fossil projects. Uh, the UK isn't going to be part of that unfortunately which means uh, they don't have any uh, legitimate reason not to go ahead with the Cambo oil field. Um, We're expecting negotiations to go on until Sunday so we won't see any finalized text or uh, agreements until then so follow the next couple of days closely because uh, it's all to play for things are likely to change a little bit.
8: i Alison DeKal, the director of Julie's Bicycle. Um, um, I'm feeling pretty dismal um, about COP26. It feels like um, we all came to that event with good heart and a lot of hope. Um, and once again, we've been let down. And the stakes are too high. They're just too high. Um, it feels that the goodwill of so many climate activists, so many indigenous communities, uh, vulnerable communities, as well as uh, so many people who've just been working away to try to create solutions for the climate crisis, as just it's just all hot air. I feel intensely sorry for those uh, climate scientists who have put their best into producing an IPCC report that was unequivocal that put us on red alert and that doesn't seem to have got beyond national interest. I feel very angry that what we haven't developed is a better system of governance where it's not down to short term nationalist political interests. Um, We need something different. We need something that goes a long way into the future that trumps national interests and that creates the mechanisms, the finance, um, the governance, accountability, um, the innovation and the fairness, the justice that will allow this beautiful, one-off, extraordinarily blessed planet that we share to actually recover. So I feel that perhaps all this effort that has gone into COP26 from civil society needs to go elsewhere. Perhaps our artists and activists, our cultural leaders need to really focus on um, creating the political, the social, the creative pressure to drive change.
1: Rides of passage day. Like
9: home. Can you tell me your name? Auntie Ivy, name. a voice for humanity. What I've been doing is arriving to these lands to hold space, to see truth, and to see what's not working. Whatever is working, we leave that alone. We give gratitude. But what I've seen not working is the structure that has been there for 26 years. Mm. COP26 is the 26th year, and I see a structure that brings a division still, a structure that doesn't serve. The promises from these conferences are still not being met. There's been no responsibility or accountability these gatherings are expired, they're out of date. And so what I want to say is watch this space because the like-minded people are standing now and this is why I came here to see who is awake, who is standing, who has got the courage to um, use the energy so we can create the new ways, the right way for the people, by the people to save humanity. Our young leaders that came here indigenous people that have taken three to four days to fly here. And one example is, I asked beautiful Cullum, who's looking after the youth activists, how are our young people in the blue zone? The blue zone that has an energy that is a strong energy that is part of the problem. And he said, they're not well. And, yes, and it made me ask how are people that are going into that zone and I found out a lot of our Indigenous people were getting uh, unwell and so this is why I was here to bring the healing uh, to action and I asked them, them bring them back to the source, bring them out to me in the park across the road so we can sit on Mother Earth, we can lean on a tree and we can sing and refill them. It's my responsibility as a grandmother to make sure our young people are all looked after. He brought them out, they sat on the ground, Nick Melby came with his guitar, we sung, and they lit up like the strongest full beam lights. They sung, they spoke from heart, and I said to them, how has it been for you? And they said they felt like slaves locked in cages, standing outside the gate, not being heard or seen. It broke my heart. I was in tears today when I spoke about them and I knew that it was worth coming across the waters through all these blockages to refuel our babies that were here with their messages. Tell me just one thing, what is the source for you? The source is what gives us life, nature, the elements, our ancestors that are our allies from above and each other.
6: But actually what I realise is that what happened there on a human level, on a cultural level was really, um, really quite enormous in the years that I've been an activist and a protester working with different bodies, different organizations, some radical, some uh, highly structured NGOs. Um, with nods to Extinction Rebellion and Music Declares. And also two generations before of Greenham Common protesters, CND protesters of 30, 40 years of environmental movement. And I feel that COP was an extraordinary um, sort of moment in the waveform where a lot of the energies and the ambitions and the invested time and heartbreak and 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 rage that's been erupting in different places and different marches came to a sense of of purpose at cop and um and I think there felt like a a surge, a surge forward and glimmers of hope. so. I don't know we may never know what the impact of the creative arts people-led um romantic whimsical protests will have but i get a real sense that none of it was in vain and we are stronger more resilient more intuitive more prepared people for being up there
0: Sophie Schnapp here, reporting for Inside COP26. Today is the final day of COP, and I've asked many of my fellow co-hosts to give us a little reflection of COP, so I thought it's only fair for me to do it as well. And I resonate with what everybody's saying. It's been an absolute journey. Um, As you know, I've been speaking to people on the front line, People in the centre of politics, people in business and people from here, there and everywhere. And obviously the people that come to COP are all very positive about it and they're all trying to make change, um, but with very different agendas and very different emotions. And so it's very hard to digest. I think we need to do a, a COP legacy Um podcast just to talk about kind of really how we feel about it going forward. I apologize deeply in advance that we don't have the final agreements of the COP to let you all know what really has happened. It seems that there has been an agreement put in place and most of the vulnerable regions in the global south as well as many other activists are deeply unhappy with it um, doesn't go far enough <laughs> this doesn't surprise me in any way because i expected that and we all expected it going into it so it's a shame but yes fossil fuel has been mentioned loss and damage has been mentioned and there has been talk of giving a lot of money to the global south and let's hope that that happens Um, the positive thing i'd say that's come out of cop for me and from my end is just the sheer vast dedication from people from all spectrums to want to make change and it really feels like there is a movement happening the dial has shifted and now Obviously, it's over to the politicians to 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 actually implement the change and develop the mandates and develop the financial tools to help us make the change. But it's also up to each and every one of us to start activating ourselves within the climate fight. And that means we have to start feeling what this means to each and every one of us individually and going back to our communities and seeing what's wrong with kind of the environment in our communities and engaging straight and directly into the communities and then talking to people and reading things and educating yourselves and with any resources and any you know even even a library membership that you have just start to engage and to, to to feel part of this because as soon as you realize that there's a community out there for you that is fighting the fight then you will be part of the community and you'll be welcomed into it with with open arms so our voices matter. Every single voice matters. And I, with my last wish, ask you all to start engaging just that little bit more and start feeling and looking inwards unknown. Um, thank you so much for joining in. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Glasgow for being such an amazing host and organizing such amazing fringe events. Um, and my final point is on legacy because this doesn't end now. This is only the very, very beginning. So there's also a uh, COP next year, <laughs> as, as COP is every year, in Egypt. And what I haven't seen in any program inside COP, the, the program of COP, is something on culture. And as you've heard and seen, there are so many people in the cultural realm who are really fighting their part and doing their bit and want support and want help. So alongside Julie's Bicycle and most of the people I've spoken to here is a plea to policymakers to start to help the policy world develop proper mandates and proper policies to allow for culture to help in this climate fight. We need culture to feel what the scientists are telling us in fact. Without the feeling, we are not engaged. So... I want to see at next year's COP in Egypt a really big place for culture, for music and for the arts to get engaged. Introducing Eno Insights. This part of the show will take a dive into Brian Eno's mind, thinking of innovative ways to save the planet.
10: Yes, it's all looking
0: A big hello and welcome to Brian Eno. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. Hi. It's a pleasure.
10: Thank you for inviting me. Great. Let's dive in. What artists do is invent other worlds. You know, whether those other worlds are novels or films, The Matrix, you know, Brave New World, whatever. They invent worlds in which you can enter and you can see what they feel like. So you can have feelings about a fictional place. And... fictional space I should say. Um, That seems to me the most important thing humans can do. It's like modeling things and seeing how they feel and then taking those lessons back into your own life. I would rather live in a world like this or I would rather not live in a world like that. How do we learn which worlds we would rather live in? Mostly by experiencing the work of artists who are all the time making those worlds. So they're doing the job of modelling. You know, everybody understands that you do modelling in science. If you want to build a bridge, you don't just start hammering bits of steel together. You make a model of it first and see how it would do in different kinds of wind and rain and so on. Well, that's what artists are doing, but they're doing it with your feelings. You know, scientists model the world in order to see how it works. Artists model the world in order to see how we feel about it.
0: It's like we need for
10: good that. quote that one.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Brian.
10: <laughs> Another T-shirt. <laughs> Repeat
5: it one more time.
10: <laughs> I have to remember what I said. Scientists model the world in order to see how it works. Artists model the world in order to see how we work. Yeah. Even better quote. Even better. <laughs> t-shirt for us. T-shirt. <laughs>
0: um, so it's like how I see it is there's there's this lack of any form of cultural policy that's helping artists to make this change but there's a lot of grassroots people and organizations who are screaming for help Mm -hmm. in the environmental sphere but then equally there's all of this data facts from the ipcc report to you know any scientist that's working on climate change at the moment have these ridiculous stark figures and they're even saying our stark figures are not even predicting what's what's already happening we are in deep deep trouble Mm -hmm and nobody's understanding how to communicate that so why are the scientists equally and the environmental politicians not using culture as the missing link let's Mm. say to express the science from the ipcc report as a song so we can feel what's going on you know it's it's a way of communicating and storytelling with the world and science can't do that
10: no no science science discovers but art digests. Yeah. It's, it's through art that you understand what you feel about things. Yeah. Science is very, very important. It, it helps you understand how the world works and what you can do with it, uh, what you can make from it. But it doesn't give you any information about how that will impact you, how you would feel about it. And that's, that's what writers and artists and filmmakers do, and musicians, you know, to give you a very good example the most impressive piece of work about climate change that I've read um, in the last two or three years has been Kim Stanley Robinson's book *Ministry for the Future*. Um, now it's a novel, so it's it's not a textbook. It's it's a it's a book about feelings. Basically, it's always saying you could do this. How does that feel? You could do that. How does that feel? Um, and. That I think is the such an important part I can tell from the way this conference is being run that nobody is asking the question, "How does that feel mm. i 've seen i 've seen people speaking on mics that weren 't switched on mm. to audience who couldn 't hear them mm. because nobody's saying "How does that feel for mm. the audience?" I had to go and switch a bloody mic on this morning so like, I... you. Know, i think you just need roadies yeah
6: all over <laughs> roadies save the world Ro-
10: roadies will save this bloody part of the world because they have a sense of purpose their job is to get it working and i don't see anybody here with that sense of okay it's wonderful we've got the event to happen
0: and such amazing people yeah. and such fabulous voices that are then kind of made to look kind of shabby, right? Yeah. So you're
6: saying you're an optimist. Uh, does your optimism travel to COP26?
10: Um, <laughs> well, w- I think what's interesting about COP26, as far as I can tell, I'm not as anywhere near as an expert as you are, because I haven't been here very long, is that there is a lot of simmering going on under the surface. I don't know that the main events are that interesting. I don't know how how surprising any of the outcomes from those will be. Um, I am impressed by the fact that there are 503 oil executives here. They obviously think something's going on and there are lots of people from the car industry and so on. So they, they at least, they kind of credit the, the conference by being here. They make you think, oh they're seriously worried and they should be but when they look at how badly it's organised they must be saying there's no problem here mate (laughs) we can deal with this
1: and that's
0: a wrap thank you so much to all the speakers um, and thank you for listening Sally Mool, Tom, Rana, Nicholas, Philip, Helena, Alison, Auntie Ivy, Sam, Brianino, and James.